Welcome to episode 43 of On the Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On the Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. On the Schmooze is a headliner on the business podcast hub, C-Suite Radio, which is part of the C-Suite Network. They also have C-Suite TV, where you can watch in-depth interviews with business content for leaders and entrepreneurs. The good news? It's all on demand. Check it out at c-suitetv.com and c-suiteradio.com. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest has covered a wide range of topics as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She chiefly covers sports, business, and politics, including both the Rio and London Olympics, doping coverage, features on legal and financial issues in sports, and the occasional video shot from a dog sled. Her work regularly appears in leading publications like The New Yorker, Esquire, and Bloomberg Businessweek. Her work has also received many honors and awards, including as part of the Wall Street Journal's team that won Gerald Loeb and New York Press Club Awards in 2011 for covering the flash crash of 2010. She was included in Forbes magazine's first ever 30 under 30 list for media. We met at a networking dinner hosted by Dory Clark, and I was fascinated to learn that she had written a New York Times bestseller about the history of the board game Monopoly. She really has a broad range of interests and experiences. Please join me in welcoming... Mary Pallon. Hi, thanks for having me. Mary, thank you so much for speaking with me from your office in New York. So I'm sure that my guests want to know more about you and your day-to-day, but since this is a podcast about leadership and building great networks, tell me, what does leadership mean to you, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So I, to be honest, had a really hard time with that question because I feel like as a journalist, you're kind of a lone wolf. You're usually off on your own and... One of the weird things about the journalism industry is the same skills that make a great reporter often make them a terrible manager. So you end up with a lot of really poorly managed media companies because you have these people who spend huge chunks of their career thinking outside of the box and kind of being hard-nosed and a pain in the butt and um, you know, really out there and critical, right? Like that's part of what makes yeah. you good at the job. Um, and then when you write books, you become even more introverted, even if you are doing all these interviews and stuff, because you're spending hours kind of burrowed into one topic. Um, so I, but that said, you know, I think you have to kind of think about the world, the word leadership differently. And in high school, I was super into student government and I was student body president and I was very interested in politics and had a much more conventional take on it. And Now I feel like, you know, and I think the election has really brought this to light for a lot of reporters. So even if by nature you're more introverted or you've seen journalism, you know, Nora Ephron always has this expression about kind of being a wallflower if you're a reporter, that you get to be in the room where all the crazy stuff is happening. Um, I'm PGifying how she put it a little bit. Um, But you're you're still there, but you're not participating. So in some ways it's kind of a cop-out. So I think the leadership part of journalism for me, especially in the last couple of months, has been figuring out what your superpower is as a reporter and a storyteller and figuring out where do you want people's attention to be shifted? Um, you know, I did a story for the New Yorker a couple weeks ago about how the Muslim ban was affecting high school basketball. So, you know, my appetite lately has been in things like applying my kind of knowledge in sports and business to the political realm and kind of dusting off my politics degree and figuring out how that, how I can kind of use the audiences I already regularly write for and, putting a little bit more creative spin on these topics that quite frankly, I and others are like exhausted reading about and I'm really frustrated reading about. Um, so I think leadership, when you're in a creative field, you have to be a little bit more subversive and a little bit more kind of out of the MBA, so to speak, box of, of how you're using it. So I think that for me, that's something that I've been really actively thinking about. But if you would ask me, we were having this conversation a year or two ago about leadership, I, I would be scratching my head a lot more and kind of like, Oh, you know, I don't know. So part of the reason I'm somebody who blew off law school to do journalism. And I think part of the reason why is I felt like for me, at least and my skills, what I love to do, I could have a greater impact writing about issues rather than representing them as a lawyer. Um, that's not the case for all people, but it was the case for me. So yeah, you know, it's, I don't know if I totally answered the question, but it's definitely something I'm still thinking about a lot. But I think when you list leaders, 
journalists aren't necessarily at the top of that list. People think of lawyers and CEOs and you know entrepreneurs, and obviously those people. That's that's very much the case. But I think that only recently has has the idea of a journalist as a leader been kind of more in the popular consciousness. I'm actually so happy that um, I thought to invite you on, and it was even before the election that you came to my mind for this. But you're right, um, particularly the piece you just said about you, know, you need to be thinking about where you want to draw people's attention, because that's a way in which reporters have so much power like an influence to help frame a story, tell a memorable story, shine the light on pieces of society that maybe we're not paying any attention to. And that's a leadership role. I mean, maybe not one we all took very seriously or thought in that way, but mm-hmm. now more than ever, like, you know, <laughs> there's a couple of reporters that are just digging in, you know, like no matter what, they're going to get the answer to the story. But I also really like how you said you took your blend of interests and you're trying to find ways to share the, share the current politics in a unique sort of perspective. I, I think you're right. We're a little tired of hearing every shoe that drops. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of shoes dropping lately. <laughs> all um, the time. All the time. I know. Um, makes me think of uh, the, the wife of the president of uh, the Philippines. Um, what was her name? Imelda Marcos? Uh, yeah. <laughs> With all yeah. of her shoes. I'm like, yeah, I think yeah, there are yeah, more yeah. shoes in this story than that one. <laughs> yes, yes. So, but, but the role that media plays in today's society, I think, is being more appreciated than ever, which is great because hopefully more people will go into that field. What, what got, a, got you? You said earlier you, didn't, you chose to not do law school. What led you down this particular path instead? Um, it was all kind of an accident. I wish I could tell you I was one of those people who had some great grand plan for her life. And I never was, I probably never will be. Um, I always loved writing. Um, and I, I actually struggled a little bit in school because I felt like I was a left and right brain person and, um, the world doesn't necessarily hand you a perfect job. And what I liked about writing about, um, business and legal issues is that I could use the left and right part of, I could write, write about poetry, but also look at a spreadsheet and that could be a work day. Like that was totally acceptable and fine. And in fact, I was really surprised in, um, kind of digging more into journalism, how many reporters have numbers anxiety and didn't want to read legal briefs and didn't want to read these technical documents. And it's almost like learning another language. And I always thought it was really gratifying to be able to look at some of these bigger pieces. And my first full-time journalism job was at the wall street journal. So I felt like at that place, I really had found kind of my tribe of nerd. Like that place is full of people who love reading and literature and books and they, you know, are crazy well-read and literate, but they also obviously like don't stray from earnings reports. And um, I felt like I learned so much there about how you can marry those two and tell stories about the economy and policy, um, but also have characters in them and really bring them to life. Um, And I think that once you... Basically, like being a reporter after my, I kind of told myself after college, you know, I'm going to try this for a couple of years. And if it blows up in my face, great. Law school is not going anywhere. If it goes really well, great. Um, you know, Joan Didion move over. But like I, I felt like I um, once you start doing it for a couple of years, you feel like it's kind of a boondoggle of a job because it's like never ending grad school. Like you're just paid to like travel and learn about things and then write <laughs> about it and like meet cool people and then ask them whatever you want, whenever you want. And so I, I kind of fell in love with it. And, you know, I, frankly, I don't really know how to do anything else. I mean, I feel like one of the other defenses I make for journalism as a job, particularly out of college, is most people can't write a postcard. Most people can't think very critically. Um, most people can't work under pressure and in high deadline environments. And Journalism teaches you all of that. So even if you do it for a few years and hate it, it's a skill set that you can apply to so many other things. Um, and, and one of the things I also like about it as a job is, and maybe I'm wrong because I haven't worked as a lawyer, but I felt like in law, you have to kind of pick a track and it's not just a three-year commitment for law school. It's a 10 plus year because of the loans and what type of law you want to do. And with journalism, you know, you can wake up, especially now as a freelancer, you can wake up the next day and completely decide I mean, I went from being a business and Wall Street reporter to a sports reporter literally overnight. Like I just went from one office to another. And then after that, and like in the last couple of months decided, okay, I want to do way more politics and mental health stories. And so I just did them. Like I didn't need to reapply for a new job. I didn't need to go back to school. I didn't need to, you just start like reporting a new thing. And I think I really like the sharp end of the learning curve. And I like that the entire job is about that. And it's not so much about knowing everything. And it's totally okay as a reporter to not know everything 
although there are a lot of Jeopardy champions in the field, um, that it's about how quickly you can find it out. Um, and that's the part of the job I really, really like is that you constantly are squeezing people's brains about stuff. That's great. I think you really made a nice pitch there for why someone, particularly right out of school. <laughs> the flourishing industry of print journalism. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and a lot of those same things, though, are being applied like in a freelance way. Um, you know, when I, when I interviewed Dory Clark a while ago, she was talking about her initial uh, steps into politics and then into being traditional PR and that it was hard to do that because print media was changing so drastically. Mm. How has that shifted for you in the years that you've been in this business, like particularly now that you're doing freelance? It's a, it's a fascinating question and probably a doctoral thesis uh, waiting to be done. But the weird thing about my career is I went from small town paper to Gawker from 2006 to 2008 mm. at a time when it was considered very taboo and crazy to, to work at, at a blog. Um, and then um, to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And then now as a freelancer, I'm doing kind of a mix of all stuff, very old school media, very new school, or however you want to define that. And I think what freelancing these last two years has taught me is that I've seen the inside of maybe, I don't know, 20 to 40 newsrooms, and nobody knows what they're doing. So whether you're a really established you know, brand, magazine, or newspaper, or you're a company that doesn't exist yet, the common thread through everything was that everybody has different issues. Maybe it's they don't know how to do the big investigative work and they really want to. Maybe it's that they don't know this thing called the internet is not a fad and it's here to stay. I mean, and everything in between. And so I think for me, I think that job security and journalism for anybody is kind of a myth right now. Um, but what's ironic to me about it is that our entire skill set is based on our ability to move and change. And in a place like the Journal or the Times, most people in that building are really okay with you go to the 10 a.m. news meeting and something crazy will happen at 1030 and you scrap the entire plan for the paper. So in some parts of our brain, we're really good at pivoting. But when it comes to our own industry, there's this sense of anxiety and fear and craziness. And so I, for the last couple of years, have been very much thinking about not just what is the industry doing, but like, what am I doing in the industry and retraining myself to do more things like TD and film. And, um, I, you know, am kind of on the younger end of the spectrum in a lot of the newsrooms I work in. So to me being a digital native or whatever millennial crap marketing slogan you want to throw at it, um, that isn't as intimidating. And I really like figuring out new ways to tell stories. And I love that I wrote a profile of an Indian tennis player and everybody in India was able to read it. Like that's amazing to me. And they could read it on their phones and they didn't have to get print copies of the magazine. And so I think the economics of that are still very much shaking out. But again, I think this election um, really showed the value of good reporting. And that I think now and you look at the surge in time subscriptions, right? And, and I think that, you know, for years, I think it's kind of a deflating job to work in because the kind of stuff I like to do, the bigger, deeper, more meaningful public interest stories, you know, I can't even tell you how many times you have to explain to people why they matter and you have to point to the impact they've had. And I just reported on... Um, a follow-up to a, a story I did about women in the trucking industry that ran last year that triggered this big class action. And now there's going to be this big sexual harassment case. It's going to, I mean, it's, you, you, it's really, you can point to those examples, but I don't think until this election, people really understood what a world without meaningful, deep reporting looked like. So I think that that it used to be that people didn't want to pay for good journalism and I online at least. And I think that that attitude rightfully so is hopefully, you know, shifting. I think it is shifting. You just shared a lot of rewards from doing this work. What are some challenges you faced in the process of doing this? And, and how do you overcome those challenges? Sure. I think that, um, and I don't think this challenge is particularly new. Um, but I do think it's something that as a, as particularly as a freelancer, you think about a lot more is that it takes, you have to do a lot of work on the front end. So um, the trucking story is a great example. Like I reported that for maybe four to six months at least before I had any certainty where it was going to run, let alone the idea of getting paid for it. So your past project usually ends up bankrolling your next one. Um, so whether that's books or magazine articles or so you just kind of constantly have like, I don't know, a quarter to a third of your income that's in flux. Um, and so if I hadn't covered business and didn't understand cash flow and runways, like Mary Pilon Inc. would be in trouble. <laughs> in fact, the last person I called right before this was my accountant because my tax returns are like, and I've covered taxes. So I find it kind of like interesting, like what deductions I can do and how that all works. But like, I understand that for some people that's not the case. So I think that like 
for me, the freelancing aspect and just my appetite for risk right now, I think is at an all time high that I'm willing to take on these big projects, not knowing where they're going to go and spend an hour or two of my day working on something. Um, you know, the second book I'm working on, um, started out as an article. And then as I kept reporting, it just became really unwieldy. So I spent a year and a half on that sucker before I even thought it was a book proposal. And I think that the bigger the project you work on, you know, hopefully the bigger reward, but I also have projects that are kind of stagnant now or maybe not going anywhere. But I try to pick stuff that really matters to me and stuff that um, I'm going to learn in the process of doing like, okay, so here's how you put this kind of thing together or here's how you know, it, I don't know if that makes any sense. So I think that you have to kind of have a tough stomach and be your own manager, even if you do have a good agent, even if you do have some really great, um, you know, people that you can pitch projects to and stuff, the time management and the, the economics of it are still something that you very much, and any entrepreneur or person who runs a startup is probably laughing at this because this is stuff they do all the time. But I don't think journalists are used to thinking that way. I think that you're right, particularly as a, uh, a freelancer, you are in this world of entrepreneur and you already said that you're left and right brained and so you're able to see the big picture and the small details and kind of blend those. And I think what's unique is that you're also feel really comfortable with numbers. A lot of entrepreneurs have a passion for their project, but not so much the business side of it. Right. So what are the things that you kind of, what, what are the areas that you're not so comfortable in? What, you know, when you're thinking, Oh, I think I might fail at this. Like what is the thing you're worried about? And how are you sort of coping with that? Right. I mean, for me, the, the idea of failure is interesting, right? Because I think it's become a little precious, too. I think people kind of valorize failure a little bit too much. And, um, you know, I, I think that, like, for me, it's a battle of time. It's more than anything. Like, you don't like the idea that you really go into a rabbit hole with a project. And in the case of reporting, you might be dragging people into the rabbit hole, like sources who are invested in a story or people who spend all this time telling you something and then you have to call them and say, oh, there's no story here. Like, that's the thing I worry about is not not so much like me screwing around and writing a bad screenplay and nobody wants to buy it, although that would stink. It's more the idea of, like, taking other people down with you or giving people false hope, particularly if they don't understand that this is just kind of the nature of the work. Um, so that's the thing I think I deal with more often than not. So now I feel like I'm trying to do a better job of looping editors in earlier on things. So I don't make these big dives, you know, without some kind of remote interest or, uh, in something like that. Um, so for me, the time piece is the big one. And the other thing too, is I think that you also just, you want you don't want to feel like you're wasting time and there's just only so many hours in a day. So today, for example, like I had three or four things I knew I needed to work on and two hours wasn't long enough for one and one hour was too long. Like, so I feel like I'm constantly kind of like playing chess with these moving parts and some days I win and some days I don't. But, um, I also think one of the hazards of freelancing is nobody tells you to take a vacation and nobody tells you to take a break. So I, you know, and one hour of writing time is like not equivalent to two or three hours of phone calls and reporting. So I'm still very much figuring out like what the right balance is in terms of, it's also tricky if you work in your pajamas a lot too, because it doesn't feel like work, but then you're exhausted at like five and it's because you haven't talked, you know, <laughs> and you like, haven't had lunch yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think that that balance is something that I know yeah. that sounds stu silly, but just like day to day time management is something that I think everybody's trying to figure out. You know, you actually, that was my next question was this idea <laughs> of, you know, I think no matter what work people are doing today, the line between work and home is being blurred. But particularly right. when you, well, when you work at home in your pajamas, <laughs> <laughs> then the line is completely blurred. I'm a work at home dad and I have a toddler. So I, you know, squeeze in work in between right. taking care of him all day. And then when he goes to bed, I keep going. And, you know, I, I'm like, I don't, you know, what, what does off look like? Right, right. So what are the ways that you're taking care of yourself? What, what are some things you either practice or you're trying to practice or hope to practice each day or each week? What a great question. Well, I, so one of the things about writing about sports is writing about it doesn't actually make you healthier. So you have to like, so you spend like a big chunk of your day talking to Olympic runners and then you'll feel really fat and gross. And you're like, oh, wait, that didn't actually make me like hanging out with these people doesn't make me more fit. So some people really love the sense of writers, 
you know, being haggard and like, you know, hungover and smoking. And I, I just can't work that way. Like I need a full night's sleep. I'm a big morning person. For me, the day is won or lost by 10 a.m. You know, like I've either gotten some really good stuff under my belt and can go through the rest of the day kind of fueled by, you know, having got some pages worked through or what have you. And for me, exercise is a big thing, which is so weird because I was like the chubby, awkward kid in high school. And now if I don't get a run or a yoga class or a trip to the gym in, you know, five or six days a week, um, like, and I actually thought marathon and half marathon training was good because it did give me some structure um, for, for working out, which I normally wouldn't have had. Um, I now feel it. Like I feel like I don't write as well. I'm a little more prickly. I'm not as focused. Um, so for me, those are kind of not negotiable now. And it felt like very princessy to me for a long time of like, Oh, I'm doing all this self care and I'm at the gym or I'm at, and, but now it's like, no, because that one hour a day or whatever it is I spend doing that helps me for the other 23. And, and, and that, helps me write about the topics I really care about and listen to the people that really need to be listened to. Um, and I think especially, you know, I'm doing a lot more reporting on mental health right now and it's a lot of dark stuff and I've written a lot about domestic violence and you have some days where just like by, you know, a certain hour you're like, God, I just need a Disney movie or something because you also just have to be able to, and my mother was a psychologist. So I think I kind of saw at a young age that, you know, people I think who work in social work or fields that are just, very emotionally intense. I think that, you know, my mother was always, you know, there was dinner at six 30 and she was not talking about patients. And so I think that you also have to, um, shut off. And for me, a lot of that's my phone. Um, after the election, so over new year's, I spent six days in the woods with, or in Oregon with my phone off, completely off. Wow. Um, I didn't check email. I didn't text. I didn't. And I've done that before. And I wrote a story for the times about it in 2014 where I did it for even more. I think about two weeks, 10 days, somewhere in there. And the thing that happens is you realize you miss nothing. That if there's an emergency, someone will get a hold of you. And like you spend so much of your day getting frittered up and, you know, garbage. So I, I really try to take cell phone sabbaticals, even shorter versions for a few hours. I did one this morning for three hours. I was like, I just have to get something done and just and it's fine. Um, so that's become a big part of my my routine now. I think particularly with the current politics and how it feels like a soap opera constantly unfolding right. and and like I try to stay tuned by watching some of the MSNBC shows, usually a day late. Mm-hmm. It's not like I've missed anything if I missed two in a row. You know, right, by right. then, usually whatever was said was reversed anyway. And <laughs> some right, some right. other news piece came out that, like, changes the entire dynamic. And, I mean, I want to be informed, but I think you're right. There's a way in which we have to kind of take care of ourselves in the middle of this and figure out what our piece is. And for you... I love that you're so tuned into the fact that what you can do that most of us aren't doing is amplify voices of people who need to be heard. And Mm -hmm. for you to do that, you have to be at your best. And social workers, I I actually have an MSW. I mean, social workers actually sit down with their supervisor to sort of, you know, detox and debrief uh, what's going on. I mean, they have that on a regular basis. It's necessary. And so when you're working by yourself and you're taking on like the world, it sounds like, I mean... Now, on the flip side, you have, like, the video shot from the dog, dog sled and, like, going to Rio. <laughs> like, you know, like, you're balancing it by having some fun also with what you report right. on. Um, the dog sled was a global warming story, by the way. So that was actually <laughs> – I even turned a dog sled into something really depressing. So, yeah, oh, you're good. You're yeah, good. Yeah, I'm a regular buzzkill wherever I go. There's always an investigative angle. It yeah, seems. that's a different website. You can just have buzzkill.com. It's, yeah, dark, exactly. it's a new brand. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the I'm the worst person to take to a Super Bowl party pretty much all the time. <laughs> Even with your earlier background in sports, I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier that um, you feel like now you're at a point in your career where as you're starting to work on a story, you already want to get some buy-in from editors. And I think you're able to do that because of the relationships you've built. You have probably met, I don't even want to know, like quantify hundreds of people in the work that you're doing, constantly meeting but and I and I can also see that you value equally the person on the street and the Olympian. That like to you, these are stories that are worth telling. How are you staying in touch? How are you nurturing the connections that you've made? Do you have? I'm, is there any practice you have in in that, or is it more hit or miss? Yeah. So over the years, I've developed a hatred of the word networking. I think that networking is for satellite dishes. I think it's disingenuous. It feels very grabby and fake and inauthentic to me. And if my job as a storyteller is to tell true stories, that's a terrible way to go about whether it's sourcing or talking to editors. I just, I hate it. 
So to me, the work has always been an anchor for things. So writing stories and making sure that editors who I want to work with or who might find them interesting, see them. Uh, that's one thing where I think social media really helps. Um, I'm a big believer in face-to-face as much as I can. Um, so if that means getting on a plane and going somewhere, if that means making time out of my day to meet people for lunch, or I just think that that's hugely important um, and making yourself a human being. So, and one of the things that's so funny too about journalism is some of the best story ideas can come from just chatting. I mean, I had a meeting with an editor last week where we were going back and forth via email about something. And finally she was like, just come by for coffee. And in 10 minutes we worked out what the story should be. And it was like way more efficient for everybody. And it was just, she was somebody who I'd worked with before. And so I knew it wasn't like I was getting called in the principal's office or anything, but like, it was just to me a great example of like, oh, oh, right. And we just had to kind of hash it out. And this was the way we operate. Um, and then with, you know, sources and stuff, I think that um, you always want to be an open line and you always want to, you know, make sure people know how to find you. I'm, I'm always amazed at how many people when you try to find them online, it's just impossible. Like there's no email address, there's no phone number, there's no anything. Um, so I really try to make myself as accessible as possible to people um, and reaching out. Um, I think there's still... Um, it's, it's, it's surprising cause it, you don't think it would be inherent to the job, but reporters who sit by their phones waiting for people to call them. Like, I think there's this mythology that like deep throat calls you and just like, you know, has all the documents and like, that's never happened to me or anybody like, <laughs> I don't like that. I know really that comes to mind. Maybe it does like, but, um, so I think that just trying to initiate conversations with people is a big part of what I do. And I'm not covering, a beat per se. It's not like I cover the Knicks or, you know, the Mets or a team regularly. So those folks, it's a little more built in because you're following a schedule. Um, but I, um, you know, to me, that's, I, maybe that's something I could be doing a better job of. Um, I also am really wary of the email lists. I do two emails when a book comes out every few years. I don't like, if somebody really wants to keep up with my work, I'm, they're more than welcome to follow me on Twitter or Facebook, but Um, I really try to kind of be like the quiet friend in the corner that's there to listen, but I'm not going to be like hanging from the chandelier. So, um, again, it's kind of like this weird wallflower mentality you have where it's like, you want people to know you're in the room, but you also know that invisibility is kind of your superpower. And sometimes you want to stay under the radar when you're working on something. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I also find that like for what I do, like I have friends who are journalists, but so the best insight I have comes from friends and people who are outside of my profession because um, mm-hmm. they're a little more blunt about what is good or bad about it, or what they find interesting or what they think is underreported. So, I mean, naturally, and this is part of why I love being based in New York, is that there are people who are great at a million and one things here in this city beyond journalism. And so, like, I feel like my piano teacher off the cuff will say stuff that will totally make me rethink a sports story I'm working on, you know, and like... I just love having those kind of moments. So I think kind of being out and about and staying in motion as a human being and kind of, um, you know, keeping a sense of presence and looking around. Um, and it, it's, an, you know, my book deals a lot, but the second one, a lot with technology. And I now am obsessed with watching people be smartphone zombies. And, um, <laughs> I, I, and I think there's so many people who are just checked out. And the curse of being a journalist is that you're never, you're always on. Everything could be a potential story. You know, the construction workers across the street, you know, why are they banging after 6 p.m.? Is there a city code for that? Like everything becomes a potential investigation or something to look into. So Mm -hmm. that also kind of ties into keeping in touch with people. I think that even these small little conversations can become bigger things. So when you're, uh, you were speaking about technology a moment ago and, uh, I think you're right. There's a way in which you're very active on social media, and that's a way for people to sort of stay tuned and follow you. But when you're going to a big event, like going to a conference, and you know that that this is something you're going to be at for a few days, is there something in particular you're doing? Um, and I'll just share that I'm wrapping up a book about uh, strategic, effective, and inclusive networking at conferences. So that's the context <laughs> of my question. Is uh, oh. you know. Like, I feel battle, man. <laughs> you know, it's well. People say it's the kind of thing they have to go to, um, but at the end of the weekend, they're like, "I don't know if that was worth it." And right. so, when you really think it's worth it, is when you put a lot of effort in upfront. It's what you said about writing. It's about reporting. You know, a lot of the upfront work then pays off. So, do you have anything that you've uh, done as a custom so that you walk in and you kind of know like what your sense of purpose is? 
Um, I didn't mean to offend you by saying I hated networking, by the I, way. I actually don't. Um, I, no, no. This is a, I actually, like meeting people. I'm Mary, not a hermit. That's I, what it. I love about what you said <laughs> is that my book is for everybody who hates networking. <laughs> because oh, good. I think Perfect. networking is that word that for people who say like, well, what do you do just to not talk to you any further if it's not what they want to talk you're like oh lawyer oh whatever you know like i don't need that i'm all about building great relationships right and Mm -hmm. that's more genuine it's more based on actual interest and i do think as much as i love technology and its productivity there's a way in which the facetime and i don't mean the app i mean like (laughs) the actual in-person conversation it's kind of becoming a lost art and even generations non-millennial generations um i'm i'm a gen x like i don't get on the phone i mean i used to be on the phone all the time growing up and now it's like i have to remind people you know what three text messages and then you call me like we don't go back and forth like it's the third message i'm gonna call you like there's no this is not meant for that (laughs) this is a device meant for something else so heading into like a bigger event though and you want to make sure that it was worth your time like what are you doing to make sure of that so to be honest, I generally avoid a lot of conferences, although I, you know, I say that, but I also do go to some and I was actually, here's a great example. I spoke at, uh, UPenn has a really great women's summit and they, I was speaking at it two weeks ago and I didn't go to UPenn. I hadn't spent much time on their campus and they, it was kind of a traditional conference in that there was panels and then there were break sessions and, and I didn't know, I knew a couple of the other panelists, but, um, by and large, I was like kind of a fish out of water. I didn't even get an MBA or anything. So um, the coolest interactions and the things when I like close my eyes and think about what was cool about that experience wasn't the panel. It wasn't even, I mean, I met some other cool panelists, but it was the people who came up right after or who I met mingling. And, and what I think a conference is that's cool, depending on which conference you're at, is it's a collection of really cool people with a shared interest, right? So it's kind of like a little bit like college where somebody has pre-selected this group of people, you know, you have something in common with. And I think especially in like, let's call it adulthood with quotes. Um, that doesn't happen that often. So I feel like, and this is how I feel in a lot of interviews. It's all about chipping through the BS and like the, the ice with somebody. So getting past the like stupid small, there's kind of like small talk, medium talk and big talk. Right. And so, um, you know, in my world, this comes up more at sporting events, right? So the Super Bowl, where I was in January, you know, the press conferences were fine. And like, I ran into some colleagues who I hadn't seen, and that was great. But the more meaningful stuff, including, you know, thoughts about football and how it was coming, came at the bar afterwards when we were, when I knew there were these cool people who I already knew were smart and interesting and insightful, but they felt like they could kind of like let loose a little bit. So I think that whatever your tactic is, getting people to let their guard down and be human beings is like way, like always. And I think that what what's ironic to me about conferences is it seems like sometimes they do everything in their power to make that not the case. They're yeah. like, we're going to put you in this windowless conference room in Florida or somewhere where there's probably beautiful, cool stuff to do. And we're going to completely structure these artificial con- like conversations and we're going to make people wear these suits and we're going to make like, we're going to formalize all this stuff. And it's like, it, it, we're going to make you feel like you're in the worst third your your worst third grade teacher's class again at, rather than doing more engaging kind of dynamic stuff and letting people kind of put their brains in a different place which it seems like such a disservice cuz so much, one of the things i love about travel is you do leave part of yourself at home and with that you get an openness to a new place and so i think a good conference should do that but sometimes conference organizers are terrible at that so it might be up to you personally to do that. Um, for me with a lot of conferences and stuff, humor has been the icebreaker, right. And making fun of that. Um, well, or I, I can, I can even think of one conference where it was exactly what I'm talking about, like a windowless conference room in Florida and a group of us banded together and flew up, like ran off to Disneyland for the day. And I'm still friends with like two of those people. Like, <laughs> so I think finding those experiences, if they're not handed to you is a really big part of things. One of the things that I talk about and write about is this idea of small networking moments and conferences. And you earlier were talking about uh, the people who are zombies while on their phone. <laughs> and right, right. I think the people who, who are a little overwhelmed by the chaos of the hallway and they head to the next breakout session like right away. So you know, there's still 14 minutes left out of the 15-minute break, right, and they're right. already sitting in the room. But somehow they're sitting as far apart geometrically possible. It's like an algebra problem, how far apart right. they can be for everyone else in the room, and then they get on their phone. 
And so you've got this like dozen people all on their phones. So I walk into that kind of room and I use humor to point that out. And then I start introducing people. Oh, do you guys know each other? And then they start right, talking. Right, they suddenly right. realize, wait a second, of all the people at this conference, these are my people. That's what I always say to them. Right. Like, you know, that you could meet anyone right. anywhere at Starbucks while waiting in line at the registration table. But like, right. they chose the same topic as you. They also came out of the chaos of the hallway. Like, so I think people have to take some ownership to make those moments happen. And I am working with associate association executives and uh, other companies to think about how to you know make these conferences a little more engaging like you said uh last couple of questions mary because this has been great um i love how honest you are about (laughs) for better for worse so real (laughs) it's so real that struggle um yeah you know i i a couple of episodes ago interviewed someone who is a high ticket sales woman and you know she works in this world that i would never know of like real luxury And it's, but she says, you know, people still make the same networking mistakes, <laughs> you right. know, like it's really a human universal issue that we all want to connect, but don't. Um, if you had the opportunity to talk to your 25 year old self and give yourself some advice about this, about how to build a really um, like supportive and welcoming professional network, what, what would you tell yourself to, to be doing in that moment? Ooh. That's another doctoral thesis you could do. Um, I think like, you know, I think about this a lot. I think about it also as my teenage self, because I have a nephew who's 16. So that's just like the stuff I didn't know when I was 16, which is, you know, could fill the Grand Canyon. Um, I think one of the big messages that people don't give, particularly like people in their mid 20s, is like, just chill out. Like, you're, you're basically like a fetus, you know, like, there's so much that's going to come. And it's, and I think that you should enjoy the ride. I think that I spent so much of my twenties being freaked out about what was next. And now I feel like I'm much more focused on like enjoying what is here now, which sounds super cheesy and new agey and ridiculous. But I think that that goes for networking too, that you spend so much time worrying about, are you meeting the right people, places, things or whatever. And especially if you live in New York and you're in this hub and there's, New York is a city of perpetual FOMO. There is always something going on that's going to be better or cooler than what you think you're doing. And I saw Hamilton. So like I even have hit the like <laughs> the pinnacle of New York City um, feeling like your cool experiences. And you still like – so you just have to like – it tests you in that, in that regard. Um, and the other thing I think tied to networking is that the people who are sometimes your biggest allies – aren't necessarily who you expect. So nothing clarifies that for you, like having a book come out. So the minute your book hits the bestseller list, the exact same people who told you what you were doing for five years was really silly or the first people to email you. And then you know who your cheerleaders are all along. And so I I think even when people are terrible to you personally or professionally, the virtue of that is that it's really clarifying. That you now have information about how somebody is working through their own suffering or insecurity. And so it's like, Oh, okay, thank you. Like now I know like where we stand on trust or where we stand. And so I think that what's funny about journalism, and I think it's true for a lot of industries is it's very, it's obviously very gossip centered. Nobody gossips like reporters and it's, um, it's very, everybody knows each other. Like I always joke that media jobs are like NBA coaching jobs that everybody stays in the league, but switches teams. So if there's a lot of that going on, like, you really need to be kind of kind or try to be kind to other people and the other way around. And there's so many people in this industry who are so talented and so nice. So when you meet someone who's a jerk, you're like, well, that person's really nice. So like, what's your deal? And I think that like my 25 year old self also gave a lot of latitude for people who are rude and unkind. And now I feel much more assertive about being able to call people out on that. Um, I also worked in chiefly male dominated professions or fields. So like I've only covered sports and wall street. So, you know, how much of that was gender age related? I, I don't know if I could parse that out, but I think that for me, a lot, I, I was always the outsider and I always felt very timid and modest. And now I've kind of like, to be honest, I think the elections had an impact on this. I've gone like full Beyonce and I'm just like, forget modesty. No, no, no. Own your successes. And like, we had these interns at NBC over the summer at the Olympics that I was just like, no, like you need to be like really aggressive. And like, I, I just went like Cheryl Sandberg on steroids. Like I just went like totally <laughs> nuts because I felt like 
the oh like it, like nobody tell like nobody pulls like young women aside in these industries and says like don't worry about being the b word or whatever like no like you people like forget if people are intimidated by you owning your success like and working hard like if you're working twice as hard as a guy and getting paid less call someone out on it it will not change unless you do and if you get fired for that so what like you shouldn't be with those people anyway and you find another like I've just become like a little bit more militant about that um, than I was at 25 because I just don't think that in spite of all the fun I was having reporting, I just don't think I had the confidence, quite frankly. I don't think I had my feet planted on the ground. I don't think that um, I trusted that it was going to work out enough because it felt so unstable to me. So I think that networking, you know, again, I just think people really reveal themselves and situations reveal themselves and you have to kind of figure out who you are, but also not sacrifice that too much. And again, I know that sounds really cheesy, but I also think it really, really matters. You could be writing uh, fortune cookies in your side, <laughs> side work. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. And I think what's hard about the advice you're giving to a 25-year-old is that it would be really hard to take that in. But I think it's important that whenever we have the opportunity to speak to people, either interns or people who are just starting out their career, is to at least give them a sense of where they could be going with their sense of confidence mm-hmm. that maybe they don't have their feet planted firmly now. Um, but to witness th- that's another way you're a leader. I mean, like to be a young woman who went into these very male dominated uh, fields to report on them, you know, isn't itself leadership and you're showing a pathway to maybe other people who maybe it's not the same path they want to take, but the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there, Maybe they're like, oh, I have something else I want to pursue. And it's like, oh, I could do that. I mean, why not? Mary did that. Yeah. Well, sometimes things like don't present themselves, right? Like, so both the things I wrote about were kind of accidents. And I had these bosses who saw more in me than I saw in myself. And I owe a lot to them. Mm-hmm. But I also think about the flip of this as somebody like in her 30s. Like, I have a grandma who's 89 who's completely fierce and awesome and amazing. And I always think about like 80 year old Mary. And how like 80 year old, like when you're in a crisis in your thirties and you're like, Oh, this is the worst thing. It's ever. like some parts of adolescence don't go away. So like I now do the thing where I'm like, would 80 year old Mary really care about this? And the answer is almost always like, no, like, because my grandma, one of the things that's amazing to witness in her is that she gives like zero, you know, S bombs about stuff in the right way. Like she really cares about her grandkids and her, you know, volunteering her this and her that. But like, there's so much stuff that just like rolls off of her now that she just like clearly would have been caught up on, you know, a few decades ago and now isn't. So I now kind of flip that advice on its head. Like, I think if you're going to give advice, you should at least try and sometimes live by it. Like, and so so, like, that's the other thing too, is I think like my guess is a lot of people who are going to be reading or listening to your work aren't a lot older or maybe they're in their seventies. And if so, awesome, like power to them. But I feel like I've, and I actually, after this, I'm meeting with a friend of mine from the journal who's in his 70s. And I feel like I've learned so much more from him than anybody that was in between us in the age spectrum at that place because he just cared about the right stuff and didn't care about the right stuff. And so mm-hmm. I think that's always a good barometer. So that's another tip. Hang out with, like, older people. Like, <laughs> anybody 65 and under, eh, I don't know. But, like, you know, like, the, everybody else, 65 plus, like, they've seen some stuff. There's there's a lot to be learned there. That's awesome advice. <laughs> it really is. So if we were meeting a year from now, and you were telling me about all the amazing accomplishments that you have had in the past year, what will we be celebrating? Oh, well, so that's kind of a freebie, because I have a book coming out in March 2018. And so what's weird about freelancing is you normally have no idea what the future is coming. And what's so fun about a book is it's like, I know I'm going to be on a book tour in March 2018. So, um, so that's, you know, it. And I think that that flies by. And then there's also a winter Olympics in between. So hopefully, you know, everything between now and then is a giant question mark, but I can tell you like, Oh no, like Q1 2018, I can tell you exactly, you know, what I'd like to be doing. So that's kind of, um, but it's also tricky, right? Because again, to this point of FOMO, right? You spend, I feel like the last couple of weeks I've been, you know, fact checking and editing and it's like the kind of boring but important part. And um, you have to kind of remember like, oh, right, this does end. Like some of these big projects, it feels like you're pregnant forever and that everyone tells you something good is going to happen. And you're like, I just feel fat and tired all the time. Like this is like, you know, it's never going to end, but you kind of know like it actually does. And in my case, especially because I've done this drill once. Um, 
So, so that's, and then, you know, launching that book, it's a story I really believe in and making sure it does as well as it can, um, because it's about mental health and it's about something that I think a conversation we need to change the way we're having it. Um, I'm really excited about that. So, you know, you could, I could tell you a bunch of metrics about things I want the book to do in terms of sales and this and that and the other, but the truth is like, I really want people to connect with the story. Um, and I really want to be at events. And if people come up to me and say that this really helped them, great. That's, that's awesome. Um, which I had, you know, the, the blessing experience with the monopolist, but, um, I want to do that again. Um, and, and then, you know, I have some bigger stories in between that again, it would be great to see some measurable impact. Um, and sometimes these bigger stories have a longer tails that doesn't happen within 24 hours of publishing it. The women trucker story is a great example, right? I mean, that ran last summer and I did the blog post last week. So, um, seeing that progress and, you know, my trucking pilot, I really want to see, get a bigger audience, um, and finish that up. So yeah, we'll see. Mary, this has been a great conversation. Uh, what are the ways people can find you and follow your work? Sure. So it's marypilon.com, M-A-R-Y-P-I-L-O-N. If, uh, angry, you know, sports readers can find me, so can you. (laughs) And I'm on Twitter at the same handle. So those are, those are the best. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary Pallon. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. One of the things that stood out for me was how incredibly crucial journalists are right now. More than ever, we are relying on professional journalists to uncover the truth through, as Mary puts it, meaningful, deep reporting. Of course, it's important to realize that every story that is run has an angle that the journalists can determine where they want people's attention to be directed. That is quite the superpower, and it can help the public tie together disparate stories. Like Mary's article in The New Yorker entitled, The Ripple Effect of the Travel Ban on High School Basketball. She never knows how her work will be received or the impact it will have, but her investigative work regarding sexual harassment that many women truck drivers face led to a class action lawsuit. That's powerful. I'll include links to the stories I mentioned in the show notes. You'll find them at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 43. Mary mentioned that she's doing her best to stay relevant in an ever-changing industry. She's willing to stretch herself to learn about other forms of communication like TV and storytelling through digital media. Are your eyes open to the changes happening in your industry? Are you willing to go out of your comfort zone to learn new skills so you'll be seen as a leader in your field five or even ten years from now? It's not enough to just be good at your job. You always need to be looking for ways to stand out. A disruption in your industry is just one venture capitalist away from happening, and no industry is immune to this possibility. So invest in your own professional development even if your company isn't. And did you hear Mary talk about taking a cell phone sabbatical? I did this while on my honeymoon. I thought I was going to a resort that would not have Wi-Fi or a cell signal, but when I arrived, I discovered that that was not the case. So I put my phone in the safe that was in the room. Yeah, it was still within reach, but I would need to consciously take it out instead of the constant checking we we're all so prone to doing throughout the day. As Mary writes in her New York Times piece about taking a three-week cell phone sabbatical while traveling in India, the first few days are difficult, but then a few days in, she started to become even more present to the world around her, instead of worrying about what she was missing out on. While she doesn't have the ability to take three weeks off on a regular basis, she continues to put her phone away for a few hours, a day, or sometimes longer. As tied to my phone as I am, the two times I've done something similar for a long stretch of time taught me that there are benefits to this exercise. One way to move towards a cell phone sabbatical is to not bring your phone into your room at night or check it first thing in the morning. Do not let what you read last on Facebook impact your sleep or start your day reacting to other people's needs by responding to email. And if you need to focus on a project, put your phone in a drawer so you're at least aware that you're reaching for it when your computer's browser is slowly opening up the 12 tabs you left up from yesterday's research. And if you are your own boss, you're not going to be told that it's time to take a vacation, so I'll tell you. If you're self-employed, you probably are working day and night, so 
it is definitely time you took a break. Schedule in a weekend trip a month from now so you'll have time to wrap up major projects while enjoying the anticipation of having a vacation on the horizon. Make the commitment to take some time for yourself. Leave a comment in the show notes. Do you host a conference or convention and want your attendees to feel that your event was incredibly valuable because of all the connections they made? I work with associations and companies to design events that increase engagement and create a welcoming culture for all attendees, especially your first-time attendees. The result is that long-time attendees, presenters, and board members have a host mentality, and all attendees have the tools to strategically build relationships and their professional network while at your event. If you want to increase ROI for your attendees, and therefore their retention, email me and we'll schedule a call. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's R-O-B-B-I-E at R-O-B-B-I-E-S-A-M-U-E-L-S.com. As a busy solopreneur and work-at-home parent with a toddler, I am juggling a lot of responsibilities. That's why I use Contactually, a robust CRM that's perfect for managing my professional network. I use it to help me manage my most important relationships and the ones I hope will become significant. As an affiliate for Contactually, they're offering my listeners a free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Let me know if you sign up for the free trial and I'll help you get set up for success. Visit Contactually.com slash invite slash moves for more details. That's Contactually, C-O-N-T-A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y dot com slash invite slash moves. S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. For your convenience, I'll add the link to the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 43. And I would love it if listeners join the launch team for my new book, which will be released this summer. It's called Croissants vs. Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking Conferences. If you'd like to receive an advanced copy in exchange for an honest review, send me an email. Again, that's Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. And if you want to discover other business podcasts, check out C-Suite Radio at c-suiteradio.com, where you'll find On the Schmooze in good company with other C-Suite Radio headliners. I want to sincerely thank all of you who've already subscribed and left a rating review in iTunes. By subscribing and leaving a rating review on iTunes, you're helping this podcast get discovered by more listeners. Will you subscribe and leave an honest rating review? Include your Twitter handle in the review so I can give you a shout out. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be sharing best practices for networking with someone who is differently able than you. Don't let someone's disability stop you from making a connection. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.